Welcome to This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 25 years. I'm a life coach, author, and speaker. I also work full-time as a process analyst in the power industry. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had diabetes for nine years. I love hiking and painting. I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after I get my degree in college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my life and my future, to learn everything I can about type 1 diabetes. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 64 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking with Haley Williams, a crime scene investigator with type 1 diabetes. A quick reminder for our audience, if you have any questions about type 1 diabetes, please leave us a comment or send an email to colleen at inspiredforward.com. We answer listener questions in future episodes. Now, I have the win this week, and it's that I figured out how to bolus for some of the different food that I've been eating coming off of my elimination and reintroduction plans. And it's actually partly related to the hack, which you'll hear momentarily. I ended up bolusing for total carbs plus a percentage of protein um, about 30 minutes in advance of eating, and that seemed to do the trick. I was having a lot more uh, vegetables on my salad and some different foods to go with it. So it was a tiny bit more carbs, but it was a different kind of carb. So that's that's what I bolus for. Jesse, you have the fail this week. So technically at the moment, I have two fails. My first one is that I forgot to write down in my diabetic journal about when I changed out my insulin site. And it wasn't necessarily the site. It was the fact that I changed out my reservoir and not necessarily patch. I was like five minutes late to something as it was. So I just didn't have the time. Luckily, I changed it out like later that night and wrote it down. But it's not that big of a deal, but it still irks me when it comes to like the accuracy of how much I'm using of what. That's my first one. The second one is that I'm actually in Leavenworth right now. I am recording this episode from our Hilton Inn lobby. So if you hear a slight echo or just a little bit of background music when I'm talking, heads up. Also, I am wearing a mask at the moment, just keeping everybody safe around me and keeping myself safe as well. I might sound a little muffled. And then my little plug here is if you ever go to Washington State, make sure you stop through 11 North and pick up some really good sausages and authentic German food. It's so good. And it's such a beautiful town. So definitely check it out if you get the chance. And then what's our hat, Colleen? Well, it's an oldie but a goodie, which is pre-bolusing for your meals. It lets the insulin start working before the carbohydrates hit your system, which is why I was doing it with my salads. And that also means you'll preempt a spike in your blood sugar or at least a really big spike. I still pre-bolus even though I eat low carb because it really helps keep my number flat and steady. I found out from doing this that I did have to do about 30 minutes in advance. If I did it like 15 minutes in advance, then it, it wouldn't work fast enough. And so I've been moving it to about 30 minutes ahead, which is when I kind of start making my food. So it's pretty easy to keep track of when I'm doing it. And now we're going to get into the interview with Haley Williams. Hi, Haley. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Real excited. All right. Let's just dive right in. Give us the rundown of who you are and the role that diabetes plays in your life. 
Yeah. So I'm 28 years old. I actually turned 29 in five days. So, you know, best month out of the whole year is October. I am a crime scene investigator. I have only been doing that for about two years. Before that, I was a 911 dispatcher after I got my undergrad, my bachelor's of arts in sociology. And while dispatching, I got a master's of science in criminal justice with a specialization in behavioral analysis. But going all the way back, I was born in New Jersey. I didn't live there for too, too long. I'm a military brat. That's what brought me to Texas, which is pretty you know, exciting. I love Texas. I love the East Coast, but I'm definitely a Texan now. I would say how diabetes plays a role in my life. I'm still so new to it. So I was diagnosed at 26. So this is my third year coming into it now. Uh, it plays a pretty large role right now. I feel like I'm still learning. I'm still adjusting. That's why I'm excited to be here and excited to listen to your guys' podcasts. So tell us the story of your diagnosis. Did you know anything about diabetes before then? Was there any family history? So I'm trying to keep this short. I feel like it's such a long story. I did write an article about my diagnosis that's on forthefansmedia.com just to get it out there, kind of to help myself deal with it as well. So like I said, I was 26 years old. I didn't know the difference. It's a new diabetes existed, but I wasn't informed of what type one was, what type two was, what you needed to live for it. I didn't know I had any family history. We did not have contact with my biological father's side after I was 10 years old. So when I started feeling sick, which I'm going to get into here in a second, I thought it was a thyroid. That's all my mom's side. Three generations at least have thyroid problems. Um, So autoimmunes run in both sides of my family, apparently. And I was dispatching at the time. I noticed that I dropped some weight. I went from 170 down to 140, probably within a month. And I wasn't trying to lose any weight. So I thought it was very weird. I mean, I was kind of excited because I was like, well, dang, I'm 140 again. Like I haven't been 140 since college. So I did notice I was drinking a lot as a dispatcher. I worked a 12 hour shift and I was drinking a gallon of water per shift, which meant I was peeing every five minutes at least. The most of my symptoms were very noticeable because I got really, really thin. My cheeks were sunken in. I was very weak. I had to use the wall to walk. I started my current job in the middle of all this. So I they saw me from like 140 down to 119 pounds. So by the time I got diagnosed, I was from 170 to 119. And my potassium was at a 2.1, which is supposed to be a 3.5 to 5.0, which is why I was so weak. So I fell a couple of times, you know, busted my face into a door to make sure to explain. I really did fall into a door. It wasn't like somebody else that beat me up and I was lying about it. The first doctor I saw was back in March of 2018. I went to him because I slept for 16 hours and didn't think that obviously that was a good thing. And I thought it was my thyroid. So he only ran a few tests. He didn't believe me. He said it was sleep apnea. He didn't care. And he sent me on my way. I got a call the next day. My blood work was fine. I was healthy. Fast forward to June, I went to a gynecologist. And it was the same, I don't know which one to call it, same clinic, but different departments. So he was able to see the blood work that the other doctor did. And I had expressed to him the weight loss concerns. So he looked at the blood work. He realized that he didn't run all the tests and he also didn't run a glucose panel. So my gynecologist did it. So my gynecologist is who found my diabetes. Uh, My A1C at that time was above a 12.4%. It just said 12.4 and above. And obviously I was referred to an endocrinologist. They didn't take my insurance. So 
Then I had to find different ways. I ended up seeing a cardiologist before an endocrinologist. And by the time I saw one, I had to spend 12 hours in the hospital for my potassium and my blood sugar being in the 500s. Holy crap. <laughs> That's like the short, concise story, y'all. Like, it was crazy. That's oh great. That's insane. That yeah, does not give me any hope for the healthcare system. Hate that first doctor I saw, and I still tell my gynecologist every time I see them, thank you for saving my life. Definitely. So with that crazy, insane story <laughs> out of the way, what are your favorite and least favorite things about type 1 diabetes? Man, I feel like favorite was so hard when I saw these questions. I was like, favorite? My favorite thing was not having diabetes. <laughs> but I was talking to some friends and they were like, well, you're, you're being more of an advocate for it. I talk about it on my podcast. I write articles for our website on it. Try to help explain to all the family members that tag me in the Walmart insulin on Facebook that it's not really that effective. It's not an alternative just because certain things are going on in the healthcare system. So I would say that's my favorite thing is getting more immersed in the diabetic community, learning more from the people around me, and then also helping be an advocate for it. And my least favorite right now is that I am dealing with the Dawn phenomenon and the cost because I cannot afford a pump. And so I can't, I'm having a hard time dealing with that Dawn phenomenon and not being able to really correct those numbers at night. So definitely those two. I'm sorry to hear that. I still deal with the Dawn phenomenon a lot. It's it's not going to go away for a while. (laughs) I've had it 25 years and I still have the Dawn phenomenon. That's crazy. It's yeah. annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it will so stay annoying. How do you, so how do you manage your diabetes? Do you do shots then? So I do. I do shots. I've been doing that since I started. And I do a traceba in the morning. And then I do my Humalog with my meals. And I recently was finally able to get the Medtronic CGM because I had them push it through as a pharmacy benefit. Instead of a medical device, my insurance does not cover medical devices. So... Thankfully, (laughs) I'm like, I don't get it. This is life safe. Like people need this. Why is it not accessible? Which that's what we're all screaming all the time, right? So finally, $75 a month copay and I can have the Medtronic and I'm like, I don't care. I just want it. You were going to charge me $300 a month prior. So I'll take the 75. Which CGM did you get? So I had the Guardian Connect. I have it actually on my little forum. I got my little pizza sticker on there right now. I love now. it. Whoa. Inside of the... Is that the inside of the forearm? Yes. That's, oh my uh, gosh. That's, uh, Did that hurt going in? It does. It's not the best coming out because of like the hair on your arm either. But I like try to switch it up, especially if I want people to see what the sticker says, then <laughs> I try oh, to make yeah. it more visible. So like, one thing with the little hairs, I've gone through this a lot with mine, is you just, just shave it. Just... Take yep. it off. <laughs> yeah, I just did that last time and I, it was so much easier. You are Otherwise, right. it's a forced wax. <laughs> I wish I would have known that sooner, but for sure from now on. Yep. Have you, what diet have you found works best for you to manage your blood sugars? Since now you have a CGM, you can see what helps better. Yeah, the CGM definitely has been a lifesaver. I feel like before that, well, when I first got diagnosed, I had the honeymoon phase. Everything was great. My numbers were great. I was dropping low a lot, which sucked. Um, A1C got down to 7.4 I think four at that point, a few months after, which was amazing. But then that's, yeah, it goes away, right? Honeymoon phase ends and things like burnout, which I know we're going to talk about later. Things like burnout happened, got my A1C all the way back up to a 10 right before I got this CGM. So 
I now got it back down to 7.7, which I'm super excited about. But I do feel like diet is still something I struggle with. So that is still something I'm trying to figure out for my body. I am stubborn when it comes to not eating carbs. I very much enjoy potato chips and um, candy and stuff like that. And I'm trying right now not to snack in between meals. I'm just trying to either do four meals every four hours or three meals with a little bit, maybe a little bit more. So I'm not wanting potato chips like when I get home from work. But low carb has always been the best thing for me. Good to hear another advocate for low carb, even if you do still enjoy potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I was upset about, okay? <laughs> potato chips. I'm not going to lie. I did enjoy the kettle chips way back when. Yes. And I would buy those family-sized bags of puff Cheetos or regular <laughs> Cheetos and just eat the whole thing. I mean, those were college-sized bags, not family-sized bags. Let's be honest. Right. Yes, definitely. <laughs> So you mentioned burnout, which is our next question. And we ask this of all of our guests. What does burnout mean to you? And if you've experienced burnout, what do you find helps you get out of it? Yeah. So uh, burnout to me is just not necessarily giving up, but not wanting to do it anymore. So everything, maybe just your mental health is at a point where you just don't want to do it anymore. Kind of like its own depression. And it could be a side effect from depression even. And I wasn't somebody who really ever felt like I had depression or went into these moods, but right after I got diagnosed, that actually sent me into the stages of grief and a depression where I wasn't taking care of myself, not just diabetes related, but not showering as much, not putting on makeup, not like shaving my legs as often. And so I saw a counselor. I recognized it as burnout thanks to all the wonderful diabetic stuff out there, the Facebook support groups that are out there and just kind of doing my own research. I saw a counselor and I spoke to my support network, my friends, my family, and my doctor about it to try to pull myself out of it. I do sometimes feel myself slipping back into it. I think the main things that cause me to fall into it are being told no constantly for these medical devices. And, you know, just the cost alone does it. I mean, it's just ridiculous that I think right now for me to get a pump, it would be $3,300 up front. So things like that. And I just have to try to kind of the that mantra of you you got to accept the things you can't change. So what advice do you have for diabetics that are feeling that burnout and that heaviness on them? Yeah, like I said, you know, speaking to a counselor, mental health is so important. I feel like we don't talk about it enough. That going to a counselor seems kind of taboo, like you don't want to tell your friends and families that you're seeing a therapist. But I feel like in this day and age, it's so normal, right? Because everybody needs it. It's just us going to the doctor. Every however many weeks we go, it's normal. And that's what it is with your mental health, having a counselor, having a therapist, that's normal. So things like that and a diabetic support group is what I found to be some of the best information I've ever received. Joining one that's in the Austin area here in Texas. So hopefully when COVID eventually calms down, I'll get to meet with them in person and have an even stronger bond with that group. But yeah, I mean, you just got to seek the help. You got to want the help and you got to seek it. Very cool. That's very inspirational to hear. So what are some major changes that you've seen with your diabetes over time? Yeah. Like I said, the honeymoon phase was great. (laughs) I loved it. And after that, I felt like it got super difficult after getting the CGM. It was a whole nother story. I feel like being so new to diabetes, I don't know really the difference. Like I don't know what you guys had to go through before these items were 
a thing before CGMs or before the pumps and all that. I can talk about not having yeah. CGM before because I've only been on CGM for five years. I was oh a very, very late adopter. And I didn't want to because I didn't want to rotate two different sites and have two different devices on my yeah. body all the time. But honestly, once I got it, I was like, that is the stupidest reason ever. This is awesome. <laughs> now, if I had to give up one of them, I would give up the pump because the CGM yeah. is just, it's life-changing. Yeah. I mean, having those constant numbers, I mean, that is the biggest change that I've seen in my life is knowing what they are. And especially with the Dawn phenomenon, it has made me sometimes not recognize my lows as soon. And so I'll be getting into the 50s before I even feel it. And just having that CGM on my phone and being able to pull it up and, oh, let's see what I am right now. If I can eat this snack or for my job, if I need to know before I go outside and work for a few hours outside. Yeah. When I was in college, because I didn't have the CGM, I would rely almost entirely on how I felt when I was walking or riding my bike between classes. And sometimes I would get to the classroom and be like 50. And my... Then friend, now husband would toss fruit snacks at me. So yeah, I that think another, another thing with that, with that, having a CGM for me was I was afraid to go to bed. Um, mm. When I was working nights as a dispatcher and my husband was on days as, as a police officer, I was home alone at night without a CGM. I was afraid I was going to drop low and not wake up. And so, cause I went pretty much the first two years of my diagnosis without it. And I was dropping low a lot in the beginning. So it was a legitimate fear of mine. And I had to get on sleeping medication just to sleep. But a few times it did happen throughout the night and it, my body woke me up. It's a, it's a wonder what our bodies do to like let us know that there's something's happening. Yeah, I will, my, I will wake up if I'm like 50 or below 50 or something like that. So I don't have that kind of hypo unawareness. But I know yeah. a lot of people don't. And it is a very real fear out there. Yeah. So knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had done differently the first couple of years of diagnosis? Stick to the plan. <laughs> Stick to the diet. That I was very low carb in the beginning, which was causing a lot of my lows just because that honeymoon phase, I was already doing good. And then I was eating really low carb. And I don't mind eating healthy food. Like I have enjoyed salads the most out of many, many different kinds of foods. But being told you like pretty much not can't, we all know it, that's not a thing, can't. But that you really shouldn't have all these bad things, especially in one meal. Like, but I want them. <laughs> like, so I guess just having more willpower, I wish I would have done that. But also knowing like that's okay and not to beat myself up about it because it's a journey, diabetes. So we're going to have those valleys and you're going to have the peaks after. And so you just kind of have to kind of ride the wave sometimes and be like, it's okay. It's going to get better. I'm going to get back on the wagon. Doing some more research too. That was a big thing. It it took me a while to research a lot about it. And mostly because I was actually ashamed at first. I didn't tell a whole lot of my friends. Uh, I didn't want people to think I did it to myself. And I had to come to terms with it myself before I really shared it with a whole lot of people. I told my closest friends and my family. And of course, my husband was with me. But yeah, I wish I wouldn't have been ashamed. But now I'm like, that's why my CGM is right out in the open. I want people to see it. I want people to ask me about it. I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> That's really cool. So do you have any like favorite or cherished memories with or about type 1 diabetes, like doing a type 1 diabetic run or like completing a hike or, you know, just anything that you're really proud of just for doing? Yeah, mine might seem a lot different because I used to be a runner. Got to get back to that. I'm not actually <laughs> not a runner right now. And I'm definitely not an outside person that goes for hikes. 
camping, any of that stuff. Don't like it. Mine's actually my diabetic tattoo that I have, which is on my other forearm here. You can kind of see it in this, but... Oh, that's awesome. I have the drops for the blood drop, the T1D in the middle, and then the blue circle is actually a wave because the ocean is my, my happy place, my favorite place to be. And my family all got the drop. So my dad got the drop with me, and then I was the only one who got the word and the wave. Do you mind taking a picture of that so we can post it in the show notes? Yeah, I have a picture of it from when I first got it done when it was fresh. So I can send that for sure. Awesome. I am still waiting to get mine. And I (laughs) I wanted to like work with the artist to design it. And the watercolor is... I'm excited for watercolor. That's awesome. Yes, it was incredible. It was a great experience to do it with my dad. They all have the drops as like a diabetic support team. And then mine, of course, is the actual diabetic tattoo. I don't know if I could convince my husband to... My husband still doesn't have it. My husband still doesn't have it, but I'm going to the tattoo artist on the 10th because my birthday is on the 8th. So, you know, birthday tattoo and he's coming with me. So I'm going to try to get him to get it then. Here's hoping. (laughs) Fingers crossed. This episode is sponsored by NuGo Slim Protein Bars. NuGo specializes in low glycemic index ingredients and their bars come in seven different flavors. Flavors you wouldn't ordinarily expect in a protein bar. They have raspberry truffle, crunchy peanut butter, brownie crunch, toasted coconut, roasted peanut, chocolate mint, and even espresso. These bars are coated in rich, real dark chocolate. And they come in about 19 grams of carb with 6 grams of fiber and zero artificial sweeteners. On the glycemic index, they come in at 24, which is far below the threshold for low GI foods at 55. As a disclaimer, because I'm super carb sensitive... These bars do affect my blood sugar a little bit more than they might affect yours. I can have about half a bar at a time if I plan for it correctly. They taste pretty good and they are a great option if you're on the go or just need to add some protein to your diet. To try Nugo Slim, text TYPE1 with the number one, that's T-Y-P-E numeral one, to 28398 for 20% off your first order or to pick up a sample pack for just $7 shipped. You can also visit trynewgo.com. Again, your 20% discount code is TYPE1, texted to 28398 or at trynewgo.com. And now back to Haley. So let's move into talking about what you do for a day job. You are a crime scene investigator. How did you get into forensics and, and crime scene investigation? So to be honest, I just kind of fell into it. So I said earlier, I was a 911 dispatcher right out of college. And that kind of was because I had interned for that police department. And so I knew them and I was graduating college and didn't know what I was going to do for money. I was working at like a burger place at the time. So definitely wasn't enough money to support myself on. And I just went up there, asked them if they had any job openings, said dispatcher. My mom was a dispatcher. So I was like, I could do this. You know, if she tells me I can't, then I'm not going to do it because she knows me best. But I did that. I did it for four years. and. It's a great job, but it is hard because you hang up that phone. You don't know the rest of that story. You've got to pick up the phone and answer the next one. And I really wanted to get more in the field, more investigative, go out and actually help the scene. And so I was constantly just looking at jobs and openings at the police departments around us. And one opened up at the city right next to me and for a crime scene spot. And I'm just very thankful that I got it because this field is very hard to get into. Because once people are in it, they typically stay the full 20, 25 years, especially if you don't have experience, which I did not. How do you manage your diabetes in the field? And then what do you do if you go low in the field? 
Yeah, this one has been difficult before my CGM. I feel like it was even more difficult because I wasn't checking. I would be on a scene for two, three, some up to seven hours and not checking because I didn't have time or I'm wearing gloves the entire time. So I'm like, I don't want to take them off, prick my finger, put gloves back on and relying again on how I was feeling. And like we talked about a little bit ago, after I got my CGM, it's a lot easier. I have my phone on me at all times anyway. So I could just pull it out and look at it. Jolly Ranchers are in the van. I have glucose tablets, all that stuff. My coworkers are aware of, you know, different situations. If I'm completely passed out, please call for help. You know, don't try to like pour things down people's throats. That's not okay. But they understand, you know, if I say, hey, I need to go sit in the van for a minute, deal with my blood sugar, they're totally cool with it. And I've been on scenes where I totally forgot to bring it, forgot to bring the candy, forgot to bring my insulin, and I didn't have food. So uh, coworkers have brought it from the PD back to me out on scene before. What about high blood sugars? Yeah. So I'm still trying to figure out how you do that other than a correction dose of insulin. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm like, okay, cool. High insulin, a little bit of a correction dose. We're good. I found that if I'm high at work when I'm in the office, if I go on a walk around like the block, around the park, then that'll start, it'll kind of kickstart the insulin to bring it down. Yeah. And, you know, Texas is very hot and I am on the side of heat lessening my, lowering my blood sugar versus yep. making it higher. So when I'm in the sun, it'll lower it for me. Yep. That, that works for me too. It's always fun to get out of a hot shower and be low. <laughs> exactly. Or you're just laying by the pool, you get up out of your chair and you're like, whoa, hold up. What, what just happened? I would definitely recommend like cold water, like just cold water does, uh, it works wonders. <laughs> Drinking it, not dousing yourself. I was like a cold shower. No, thank you. And I was, before I was diagnosed and my potassium was super low, I had to take cold baths because I couldn't stand in a hot shower without passing out. So never again, no cold showers. Jesse, Do you tell your manager about your diabetes before you started your job? So I actually was in the process of getting the job when I was going through all of this. When I first applied, I was the 170 pounds. By the time I took my little exam that I had to take, even apply, I was probably in the 140, 130 range. So my current boss at the time had already noticed that difference in me. By the time I was sworn in as a crime scene investigator at the PD, I was down to 119. So they were aware, they could see it, and they were aware of all my doctor's appointments because I had had to keep them in the loop. I didn't have leave. I had to take leave without pay for some things just because you don't have it when you first start a job. And they were just very supportive. They took me off of on-call rotation type stuff. I couldn't go out to crime scenes before I had a diagnosis because I was so weak. They were worried I was going to pass out. And that obviously you can't really have that happening. And as soon as I got my diagnosis, I told them when I was in the ER... I called my boss that night before and I woke up to my lieutenant calling me and the police chaplain calling me. So with that, how much does your employer or your job, I don't really know how this, the crime scene investigative, like what the levels are and everything, but how did like their, do they have any accommodations for you with your diabetes? And then did you also have to prove that you could function properly in the field? So I was very thankful that I never had to prove whether or not I had to perform in the field, whether it was going to affect me because my lieutenant's daughter was type one diabetic. So he had a ton of knowledge, way more than I had uh, when I first got diagnosed. And so they were all fully aware of what that meant. And, you know, as far as accommodations, they just take it as it comes. You know, if I need time off or if I need to go sit down, we've been 
doing things in the lab and I'm like, hey, got to go grab a Reese's in the office real quick. I'll be right back. It's okay with them. They're not, they're never uh, like upset about it. Did you ever have, I guess, do you currently have like bad timing blood sugars? Because I I know (laughs) without the CGM, (laughs) bad timing blood sugars are probably a lot more common. Yeah. And actually I did a free one month trial with my CGM before I got it. And then you want to talk about bad timing. I was sitting in a courtroom (laughs) with my phone completely turned off because you have to, you're not allowed to have your phone go off and low blood sugar. Here we come and ding, my phone goes off in the middle of the courtroom. So worst timing ever. So what happens at that point? I've never been in a courtroom before. I'm still (laughs) like 17. So like what happens when like a phone goes off in the courtroom? Thankfully, this was a plea deal. Um, type situation. So it was really just the family of the victim, the suspect and all the lawyers and all that judge. And then the personnel who had worked the case, I was not there for that case, but I wanted to see a plea deal happen. I was still very new to the police department and it went off. And I didn't even look up to see if the judge or anybody heard it. Nobody said anything except for one of my coworkers. They leaned over and said, turn off your phone. I was like, it wasn't me. It was my CGM. And they were like, oh, okay. Do you need something? So that situation was better. It could have been so much worse. What's your favorite thing about working as a crime scene investigator? It's going to sound so cliche, but I enjoy helping people. I think some of the most exciting things are taking fingerprints off of like a stolen car and you get a match in the system. So you kind of help solve the case. Just being on the scene and helping investigate different suicides to I haven't had a homicide yet. Thankfully, our town is very safe little town. And we haven't had one of those in a while, but stuff like that, you know, helping find the suicide notes, helping the family get some closure and just really being a part of that process is my favorite part. What is something that you would want to change if you could about your job with diabetes? Oh, that's such a hard thing. I feel like that my job is so chill about it. But those long scenes, I was on an accident fatality scene for seven hours in the Texas heat. It was like a hundred and something that day. And I just wish that I didn't have to drop low in the heat because that was probably the worst time to have that situation going on. And I didn't have anything with me because I didn't expect to be out there for seven hours. It's normally about a two hour scene, but you just never know in this job. So maybe that, just the unknown, not knowing how long a scene's going to take. Awesome. And then besides your CGM, what changes have you made over time with your diabetes to help your professional life? Man, that one's so difficult. I feel like the main thing is just keeping my coworkers educated. You know, I try to my insulin doses at home, eat breakfast at work so that I'm not dropping low later or anything like that. You know, just being more conscious, checking my blood sugars before we go out to a scene. So that way, I'm not dropping low while I'm there. You know, you don't want to be taking photos of the scene, the family's around and monitors going crazy. So I think just being more aware and just trying to stay educated and trying to make it as smooth as possible. Speaking of educating your coworkers, what happens when you're working with someone in the field who maybe doesn't know anything or anything much about diabetes? How do you introduce that, that idea to them when you're out there? Yeah. I feel like the best thing is having the CGM because so many people ask me what that is on my arm. Is that a tattoo? What is that? Because I have plenty of tattoos. So they always jump to tattoo. I've had coworkers. So when you pass out, we just like pour honey down your throat or something. And I'm like, no, please, please do not do that. So I just try to explain it 
pretty much from the get-go. Here's what you do if I'm dropping low at a scene or hopefully, knock on wood, don't go unconscious. But if I did, here's my CGM. Here's how to access the emergency contact stuff on my phone, which says what I'm allergic to, all the medications I'm on, all that. I am in the CID unit, the criminal investigations division. So really those people know the most. As for the officers, unless they really ask me about it, I don't necessarily go to my way to tell them about it. And then as a personal question, I am going to be going into or studying to be in a male-dominated field. And with crime scene investigation, you usually just see them as like male-dominated fields and kind of things like that on the internet and in TV shows. So as a have you ever had like a bad experience in your male-dominated field? And then how did you deal with that? So surprisingly, crime scene is mostly women, but the police department is a male-dominated field. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. We talked about this in one of my last episodes of my podcast. I didn't even know that that it was a higher percentage of female in crime scene either because police departments are so male-dominated. I think some of the hardest things come from other women. We are not as supportive of each other in a male-dominated field, and we need to be. We feel like we're competing all the time that, you know, we're trying to be part of the boys. We want to be part of their club. And so we're tearing apart one another, trying to be in that club instead of supporting one another. And I'm thankful that my boss does not have that mindset. Me and her, we get along very well and we both avoid the drama, but I have seen it from female officers or just in other departments. I think that's the biggest thing. Like we just need to be supportive of each other as women. It's hard enough in a male-dominated field to get your voice out there and to be one of the boys. I hate that. Like You can be a woman and be just fine. You don't have to be a boy or be more manly to be part of that club. So I just think using your voice and supporting other women in that field. I'm sure most of our listeners are shocked to hear that CSI is made up mostly of women. I mean, I know I was. I think most of our listeners are also really curious to know is real CSI work anything like the crime shows on TV? No, not at all. We actually, in the courtroom, call it the CSI effect because the CSI shows have made people believe you can get a fingerprint off a blade of grass or you can you know, get a suspect in five seconds and those things just don't happen. We send evidence to the lab. We might not get results in two years. So things can take time. It's not fast. It's not glamorized. I am never wearing heels to a crime scene. That is, you're going to get grow stuff on your shoes and you're probably going to fall and you definitely don't want to fall at a crime scene. So there's a lot of differences. Definitely, obviously it's TV. It's going to glamorize it. We all know that. But we don't want people to think that things are that quick. We don't have a machine we can put a piece of DNA into and have a suspect in five seconds. So just as a side question, how on average, how long does it take you to have a suspect or have somebody who's reasonably confirmed to have done it? Yeah, sometimes never. We have plenty of cases that just go unsolved. And like I said, it could take up to two years. And sometimes it depends on the statute of limitations because a burglary is only five years in Texas. So if I get a suspect after five years, it doesn't matter. I can't try them. So it could be as quick as a a year, a few months, all the way up to never. It, It just depends on the type of evidence you have, the quality of that evidence. You know, if you have a very good fingerprint, that could be a good piece of evidence, especially if they're already in the system, which a lot of people are with fingerprinting. That is teachers, nurses, people work for police departments, not just criminals, but the DNA, the CODIS system, that is only people like sexual assault. 
offenses and people who went to prison. So that is a lot less in there and things can sit in that system forever. I currently have a drop of blood in there for a case that has no hit yet. And I think I have about three more years where it won't matter. So crime shows you've lied to me. (laughs) They've lied to you for so long, but they're great. I mean, they're so good. They're fun to watch. Just don't believe everything you see in them. Shout out to NCIS. I love that show. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good show. So you mentioned that you have a podcast earlier. Can you tell us about that podcast and how you got interested in podcasting? Yeah. So I think it was back in November that uh, Brian, the leader of our, our little media company, reached out to me on Twitter. I didn't really use my Twitter. I started it in college, but rarely ever touched it. And the only time I did get onto it was to share things about the Patriots football team because I'm a huge Patriots football fan. And so are the people in this group and most of them, at least I should say, but definitely Brian. So he reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be a part of the team maybe join in some of the football podcasts. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think I'm cut out for that. That sounds like putting myself out there and I don't like the way the sound of my voice. So that doesn't sound great. And then later I was like, you know what? This could be a fun hobby. Maybe I should do it. Let me just ask him what I need. Because if I need headphones and all this stuff, I'm not going to do it. Although I have those things now. Um, (laughs) So he's like, no, you just need your phone. You need Skype and we're good. And I'm like, cool. Okay, I'll do it. And I ended up signing up to be a co-host of our podcast called One for the Girls. And that is just a show about pop culture, dating. We did a, a mental health episode. We interviewed a romance author and we're doing an Empowered Women series right now. So we're interviewing empowering women in our lives. So it's really cool. We just kind of do our own thing. It's a podcast by girls, for girls. It's me two of my really good friends here in Texas and a girl that we met through Twitter that lives in California. It's been amazing. And then I also join in on other ones in our For The Fans Media Company. That's what it's called, FTF. So if you're looking for one for the girls, you have to actually search FTF. That would explain why I didn't find it just by searching for (laughs) for the the name of it. (laughs) Yes, sorry. You can find us on Twitter easily. But if you go to Apple and Spotify, it's under FTF Media and you'll find the different podcasts on there. Very cool. So speaking of your podcast, what kind of podcast do you you usually get guests for? And then who's your favorite podcast or your interview that you've done so far? Yeah. Oh, man. So we've interviewed the romance author, Aubrey Bondurant, one of my favorite romance novelists that I found on Amazon, the Kindle Unlimited. And we interviewed her my first episode with One for the Girls pod. So it was awesome. I fangirled out the entire time. We interviewed uh, Tanya Glenn, who is a mental health professional. And she has been on scenes for the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, any officer-involved shooting or active shooter incident. She goes out. She deals with the PTSD from the first responders and military. She's amazing. That episode was great. And then, of course, we're doing our Empowered Women series now. So we've been interviewing people in our own lives. Oh, it's so hard to pick a favorite. Um, I think as of now, probably that first episode with that romance author, because she is my favorite and I'm such a romance novel like nerd. That's all I read pretty much. Well, besides CSIing and podcasting and I guess reading romance novels, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> so mostly those. I am involved in a lot of FTF media podcasts. I only host one for the girls pod, but I'm involved in the True Crime and Chill, Snipe and Selly, which is the hockey podcast, uh, Nerd Pod, and our Uninterrupted, um, which is our football one. So I have a podcast almost every single night. 
And that keeps me pretty busy, but I also have two dogs. So I have a Great Dane and a Rottweiler mix that I play with and take care of all the time. The Great Dane is a nightmare right now because she's nine months old and she is crazy. So she takes up a lot of my time as well. Reading, like you said, and then just spending time with friends and family, going shopping. I've been trying to get better with makeup. I didn't really ever wear it in high school or college. And so I'm just like, oh, let's see what I can do now as an adult. I'm kind of on that team. Not a makeup person, but I'm considering it. (laughs) (laughs) I've spent a lot of money so far. So, oh my gosh, it gets so, I wear makeup like every day, even like online. Yeah. So much fun. I love it so much. Y'all are yes. not, not really convincing me with how expensive it is. So you can actually find pretty cheap stuff for for like quality makeup for cheap because yeah. I, a few years ago, went to cruelty-free only and drugstore brands typically aren't cruelty-free, but Elf is a really good one that's cruelty-free. Oh, Elf, Elf <laughs> is amazing. And CoverGirl finally went cruelty-free and that's a drugstore brand. So you can find some cheaper things for gray. I don't want to scare you off too bad. It's just that I have an addiction now and I have like 10 palettes and I use like two of them. Yeah, that happens quite a bit. And then also if you're looking for like a cruelty-free site, try profusion.com. They've got like vegan cruelty-free stuff. They're like bronzer, blush palettes and like contour kits. They're only like $5 and they're like really good quality. So that's my plug. But (laughs) okay. (laughs) So what advice do you have out there for some young diabetics or newly diagnosed diabetics out there? Yeah. Don't be ashamed. It's not your fault. You're born with it. It's not your fault. (laughs) That's something that I dealt with right away was being ashamed of it. And it's going to be hard. You're going to go through the stages of grief. You got to accept it. And that's going to be the hardest thing. I feel like even though I've accepted it, I still sometimes go into some of those stages of grief. So just remember that it's a journey. It's not going to be just one little battle and you overcome it and you're done. This is a fight for your life. And so you need to be aware of that. You don't need to be afraid of it, but you need to be aware of it. It's a battle. Things can go bad and good. Like I talked about earlier, the valleys and the peaks. So get educated, get educated fast and find your support network. What projects are you working on that you're super excited about? Man, so I have tried to start writing articles <laughs> for our website. I never considered myself a writer before. We have a great editor-in-chief, though, that makes sense of some of the sentences that I did not make very great sense of. So I have the article on there about my diagnosis story. I have one on tattoos. So if you've never gotten a tattoo, there's a couple little tips in there for you. If you're considering one and you want to kind of have the basics, but make sure you talk to your artist as well. It is not a full, complete list of what you need to know. And I just finished one about how it is almost 2021 and we need to stop asking women when they're going to get pregnant and when they're going to have babies because thank you. <laughs> some can't and some just don't want them. So I'm one of asking. the ones that doesn't want it. <laughs> Same, which is why I wrote the article. Yeah. So that I just finished it. It's going to go live on our website soon. And I am planning on doing an article with my best friend of 14 years. My my birthday is our 14th year friend anniversary. We met on my 15th birthday. And I want to do an article with her about like, you know, how to keep your friendship strong for that long. So I'm excited about that. That sounds awesome. So if our <laughs> listeners are interested in connecting with you, where can they find you online? So you can find me on Twitter. I don't even know the word I'm looking for. It's not surprising. You can find me on Twitter at CSI Haley. And that is H-A-L-E-Y. <laughs> if you've been listening this whole time, you know why it's CSI Haley. And you can find me on Instagram at Haley8091. And I mentioned earlier, the articles you can find at forthefansmedia.com. 
Right. Thank you so much, Haley, for coming on. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Jesse, what is our question for the audience? All right. Our lovely question for you, our lovely audience this week is, when did you start your professional journey, whether that's podcasting, painting, running, or even being part of the CSI, which is so cool? Please send us emails or DM us in our social media handles. And that is it for this episode of This Is Type 1. Thank you so much to Haley Williams for coming on as a guest to the show. You can find Haley on Twitter at CSI Haley, and that's spelled H-A-L-E-Y. And she's on Instagram at Haley8091. You can also find her and her podcasts at forthefansmedia.com. And you can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 64. That's the number, 64. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode or a guest request, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. People with type 1 diabetes have to handle the demands of a chronic, incurable disease on top of everything else life throws at us. While some of us can handle it on our own, not everyone can, and not everyone should. If you want help learning how to manage your emotions about type 1 diabetes, schedule a free 60-minute coaching consult at inspiredforward.com coaching. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. And I want to do a quick plug for a new diabetes community social media app called DMP, which stands for Diabetes Management Platform. It's available on Apple and Android, and I'm on the platform. And they had me come on to do a live stream recently about how to live like diabetes truly doesn't control your life. So plug for DMP, go check it out, go join up and join the community. And then I'm on Instagram as at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. I will be getting on DMP like within the next week. So please feel free to send me questions or comments you have about type 1 diabetes or the show. And make sure you say say that you're from the show, that you're a listener, just so I know that you're not some stranger or anything like that. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, like Jesse and I really love this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts since that really helps other people find us. And be sure to listen next week when we talk about self-care with type 1 diabetes. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.